0: hello everybody and welcome to teach me something the podcast where i find something i'm curious about then i research it and then i tell you the cool things
1: Mm -hmm. but not the non-cool things
0: to reference you, that's just like, you know, my opinion. Mm-hmm. Man.
1: Man. Yes, yeah, yeah. because you're missing a part of that. But okay, cool. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett.
0: Okay, this episode's hard to explain. Mm. Uh, I started out being like, I should write an episode about porphyria. I Good think that's start. Interesting. I want to know more about this disease. And. I also heard something about vampires to do with porphyria. So I'll do a porphyria episode, and I'll talk a little about vampires.
1: So far, so good.
0: And then I started researching things, and it turned into an episode about porphyria in which I mentioned werewolves and vampires.
2: And then I did more okay. researching,
0: and it turned into an episode about the Catholic Church and vampires and werewolves and porphyria, and therefore, you don't receive a thorough treatment of any one of those things. Just... Oh, and King George. There's just... Okay. This is like a whole episode of tangents.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, you keep keep seeming to throw wrenches in the works here, so let's go for it, I guess.
0: I mean, here's the thing. If you don't like tangents, Hmm. you probably don't like our show. So I was banking on the fact that maybe you would like them.
1: Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Well, how about you teach me something?
0: Okay. I'll, I'll start with the porphyria. Okay, great. We're, we're going to go with the initial premise. Of I mean, the, episode. the source
1: of the episode. Got it.
0: Yeah. And you'll notice how in the introduction I, I said I wanted to learn more about the disease porphyria.
1: Yes, I and do then remember that.
0: When I looked it up, I was like, oh, it's not really one disease at all. Really? It is many diseases. I didn't know that. It's like cancer. Like they're all related, okay. they're all sure. similar, but there are many types. Not as many as cancer, of course.
1: Okay, but no, I didn't realize it. I thought that was a very specific thing.
0: Um, I didn't realize that either, which is why I'm doing this research. Perfect. (laughs) So, Porphyria, uh, we get the name from the ancient Greek word porphyra, meaning purple. Purple. The Greeks borrowed this term from the Phoenicians.
1: Oh, and the snails.
0: Come full circle to our first ever episode of Predatory Sea sales, they, you know, Phoenicians extracted the purple pigment from the mollusks to dye their royal family's clothing. And yeah. So there are at least eight types of porphyria. Okay. Some websites seem to say a ninth. I don't know. Ooh. I'm going to stick to eight.
1: The ghost ninth. I'm
0: going to go with eight. Um, and they are quite varied in their symptoms and the severity of those symptoms. Um so in all cases though the symptoms are caused by a buildup of substances called porphyrins.
1: This makes sense, okay?
0: Right. So, Hippocrates is often uh cited online probably in textbooks too, but online as the first to recognize porphyria.
1: I didn't realize that he spent that much time
0: online. <laughs> no. <laughs> that. <laughs> um in around 370 BC. Um but Obviously, he didn't know the cause of the disease, sure, and no one really knew it until it was established in eighteen seventy one by a German biochemist named Felix hopper sayer and in eighteen eighty nine dr b J. Stockvis describes the clinical syndrome porphyria, so it didn't really get its name or description until the late 1800s okay
2: um
0: and then they started to recognize that there was different types and all that all that jazz sure. Okay, so what are porphyrins would be the question.
1: That is the question.
0: Um, as you may know, our red blood cells contain a super important compound called hemoglobin, mm-hmm. which has the also super important job of carrying oxygen around our bodies. Very important. Um, hemoglobin, as the name quite obviously suggests, is actually made of globular proteins.
1: Okay, that are hemo in nature,
0: attached to a heme group.
1: That's right. Which would yes. be iron, or um, an iron complex. We're going to
0: talk about okay. it. We're going to talk about it. I'm not going to just will. like leave spoil it hanging. like that. Okay. Um. So you know, four of these globular globular protein proteins attached to heme groups stick together, and you've got a hemoglobin. But um, heme is actually used in other parts of our body as well. It's just like hemoglobin is probably the most well known. Uh, use of it, Mm -hmm. so that's what I'm going to talk about. So heme is basically built by attaching a porphyrin molecule to an iron ion. Okay. Great. So, back to porphyrin. What's porphyrin? Porphyrin molecules are kind of complicated to describe. Sure. Um, The important part, I think, is that they're made up of a kind of like a box of carbon atoms.
1: And you're talking about like physically in space, they make up like a a box almost.
0: Yes, almost a box. Okay. It is slightly off of a perfect plane. An off box. (laughs) I don't know if that helps anyone picture anything. Um, But there's an internal square inside this box of carbons of four nitrogens. Okay. And the iron goes in the middle of those nitrogens. In hemoglobin, that iron is what grabs onto the oxygen. Okay. Okay. So, our bodies make heme in eight steps, like a, like an assembly line. Sure. And if any of those eight steps fail, then porphyrins are going to start to build up. And the assembly line is going to get jammed and all these things. Right. So... Um,
1: Mm, why wow, there's eight types of
0: there is eight porphyria. types of porphyria because of any of the steps, there can be a reason why that step fails,
1: and then you have a buildup of of porphyrins.
0: Right. So the porphyrins accumulate in the skin and other organs and are excreted in the feces and urine, which then turns a purplish red color. Okay. Thus, the name porphyria from the por for a purple this makes sense? Yes. Okay. Um, And like on every medical TV show, they'll be like, let's put the urine in the sun and the UV light makes it turn purple. And oh my God, we diagnosed Porphyria.
1: Oh, really?
0: That happened on Scrubs at least.
1: That's every show. And Porphyria
0: so. also, Porphyria was also on House.
1: I'm sure it was. When
0: Stacy comes back to get House's help to cure her husband and then he does terrible house things and... Mm-hmm. It's, per- it's acute intermittent porphyria, actually, in that episode, specifically.
1: Of course. Uh-huh. Of course.
0: Actually, I think in scrubs they say it weird. They say porphyria, and I don't like it. Hmm. I'm going to decide that that's the wrong way. I don't know if that's the wrong way, but it sounds weird to me. Okay. When they're exposed to light, porphyrins can turn caustic and destroy surrounding tissues, which is why going out in the sun... Oh, Triggers porphyria attacks. Sure. Um, at least in many of the types. So this is because... So porphyrins, um, they very readily absorb visible and UV light. They transfer that energy to oxygen molecules to form like... Is it radicals? Like single oxygen? Mm-hmm. And oxygen radicals are single oxygen. Um, as you chemistry people out there might know... Um, are very energetic and very reactive and therefore very destructive. Yeah. They just, yeah, destroy tissues, and that's what causes the symptoms of porphyria.
1: Yeah, they're so Uh, reactive that they want to bind with anything and everything, even in inappropriate areas or locations or surrounding molecules.
0: So that's the ultimate cause of your symptoms, is these oxygen um, radicals.
1: Binding in bad places. Got it.
0: That makes sense. So... a. Besides sunlight, attacks of porphyria can be triggered by, like alcohol, smoking, hormonal changes, stress, medications, lots of things. Yeah, the attacks can last kind of days to weeks long. Um, so exactly which porphyrins accumulate depends on the site of the jam in that assembly line. Okay. Um, so that's why porphyria has such a wide range of symptoms. So like symptoms are like skin blisters, itching, abdominal pain, chest pain, vomiting, confusion, constipation, fever, high blood pressure, high heart rate, low blood sodium levels, paralysis, seizures, just lots.
1: Name a bad thing, basically.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Um, and the severity also varies. So that in some cases you have a total jam in that assembly line and that prevents any heme synthesis. Okay. Okay. And in other cases, the blockage is just partial and some heme synthesis created, yeah. still occurs, right? Okay. So, but it's not just like the porphyrin buildup that's the problem symptom-wise. Um, so if that assembly line is blocked, it means your body can't make enough heme to produce normal red blood cells. Some of the abnormal red cells are going to rupture, which can cause hemolytic anemia. Mm-hmm. Anemia, meaning you don't get enough, um, you don't have enough iron, yeah. Yeah. so you don't have enough oxygen. And yeah. hemolytic, meaning your red blood cells are breaking down abnormal.
1: Which is also not good.
0: Um, the spleen is doing its job correctly because the spleen's job is to detect the abnormal red blood cells and break them down. But the spleen's going to go ahead and break more of your red blood cells down, um, which makes everything worse. Right. Very few red blood cells.
1: Right, and now you're not really getting oxygen throughout the body as you should be.
0: Yes. Um so porphyrias are divided into two kind of general categories. There's the acute porphyrias and the cutaneous porphyrias. Okay. Um acute porphyrias have a sudden onset, you know, acute. They mainly affect the nervous system, but there might be some skin involvement. In every type of acute porphyria, the porphyrins are going to build up in the liver. Okay. So the acute porphyrias are, and excuse me when I say everything wrong, the acute intermittent porphyria, one I mentioned earlier. Okay, this is the hard one to say. It's called ALAD porphyria. I wish That's I could not just hard. say that. ALAD. <laughs> delta aminolevulinic acid dehydratase deficiency porphyria. ALAD. ALAD.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: Uh, I know that doesn't, delta starts with a D, but it's because delta aminolevulinic, they just, put the amino yeah. Sure. part.
2: Yeah. Okay.
0: Not that, Yeah. Uh, there's hereditary coproporphyria and variegate porphyria.
1: Sure. I'm going to those terms. That's fine.
0: <laughs> so the cutaneous porphyrias, as the name suggests, mainly involve the skin. Right. So porphyrins are going to typically, typically build up in liver or bone marrow. Bone marrow being where you make blood cells and stuff.
2: Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah.
0: Um, so the cutaneous porphyrias are porphyria cutanea tarda, congenital erythropoietic porphyria, Hepato-erythropoietic porphyria, and erythropoietic protoporphyria.
1: So, but if it, I mean, cutaneous, suggesting in the skin, then, but you also said that they, that, like, they seem to be building up in the liver or bone marrow. Is that just being like, now there's a lack of heme or required molecules in the skin? And that's why it's called cutaneous?
0: No, the symptoms...
1: The symptoms are occurring in the skin. Yes. Okay. Got it.
0: I am not a doctor. I oh. don't really know. Shock. Guys, guys. Red alert. <laughs> you thought I was a doctor. I'm not a doctor. So, no, I don't know why. That's an excellent question. Um, like I said, I was going to do a whole episode of porphyria And then right. I was like, but there are other way more interesting things to talk about. Okay. Um, and I didn't think anyone listening would be a doctor. I mean, maybe you're a doctor, but you know more about prophyria than me. Already, you're so not you're taking this as a lecture. Yeah, yeah, right. Like, don't worry about this.
1: We'll get to werewolves for you soon.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, King George is first, but we'll get to werewolves. Know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, King George the Third, the infamous werewolf.
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: Um, <laughs> that's our episode title. <laughs> <laughs> porphyria cutanea tarda is the most common porphyria. Um, around twenty percent of cases are that type. And yeah, acute intermittent porphyria is the most common type of acute porphyria. Okay Clearly why they used it on house.
1: Uh, of course.
0: They used it on house actually because it was intermittent, so it's hard to figure out. Sure.
1: Ooh. made it more of a puzzle for house to go solve.
0: A big puzzle, that's the point. So what causes porphyria? that's uh that's the question.
1: That is a question.
0: Mostly they're genetic disorders. Okay. So you inherit a gene mutation in, so like I said, there's eight steps, yes? Mm-hmm. So in your body, when your body is building things or taking things apart, it is using enzymes to do that. Yeah. So each of, well, when you inherit a gene mutation in the genes coding for those enzymes in the heme production pathway, that's how you're going to end up with a certain types of porphyria.
2: Right.
0: So. um Each type of porphyria is related to a mutation in a different enzyme in the process. But there can be more than one mutation that affects that enzyme. So it's not always the same mutation.
2: Sure. Okay.
0: However, it's always the same enzyme that's being Being affected affected. for for this specific type of porphyria, for instance. Got it. And there's different inheritance-like patterns. Like there's one porphyria that's like an X-linked pattern of inheritance. One that's, you know, a few that's like recessive, a few that are dominant, like there's different types of inheritance patterns, but they're mostly genetic. Um, But inheriting the gene doesn't automatically lead you to getting porphyria. Um, Mm. Sometimes there's other factors like environmental things, or you're taking certain medication that like needed to kind of trigger it. Yeah. Sometimes you get the gene and then you never have porphyria in your life. Sure. So there also are acquired porphyrias. Um, So the most notorious like, environmental episode of porphyria happened in Turkey in the nineteen fifties. They had four thousand people develop a form of acquired porphyria after eating wheat seeds that have been sprayed with a fungicide known as hexochlorobenzene. Which okay. just sounds scary. Mm. Hexochlorobenzene? I mean it's yeah. six
1: chlorine done a benzene you just replace I know a hydrogen. I mean it'd be pretty reactive. Yeah. Okay.
0: <laughs> it sounds scary. <laughs> <Benzene>. Anyways <laughs> so hundreds of people died. and hexachlorobenzene was later banned worldwide shocking yeah it's bad for you so porphyria cutanea tarda the one that i said was the most common can be acquired often rather than inherited possibly that's why it's the most common because it can be acquired and not just inherited but um it occurs when um the enzyme production is going to be affected by specific triggers, and they're usually liver-related things, like excess iron in the body, liver diseases like HIV or hep C, um, smoking or alcohol consumption, estrogen-containing medications. Those things mess with the, the enzyme production. Okay. Um, unfortunately, there's no cure for porphyria. It's just kind of treatment and managing of the symptoms.
2: Sure.
0: And, like, don't go out in the sunlight, you know, things like that which sucks, but um, there is some promising trials and there's studies going on right now into gene therapies. Maybe in the future, those could provide a cure. There is some early results of a clinical trial I was reading. Um, and in the trial, it was, uh, they were just trying to treat acute intermittent porphyria and they use this gene therapy and they reduced attacks by 79% okay. through gene therapy. So that's pretty cool. So yeah, hopefully, hopefully we uh, make some more progress in the future there. Yeah. Um, now, if you ever look up Porphyria online, like I have done a lot in the last few weeks. Right. I guarantee you almost every single source, even things that seem pretty medically sound, are going to say, the most famous sufferer of Porphyria is the mad King George III of England. Hmm. Um, which I, I don't know much about King George III. No. I've definitely heard of a play or movie. I don't even know, called The Madness of King George. I mean,
1: I've heard that the words phrase, King George and three.
0: <laughs> okay, well, I'd heard the phrase The Madness of King George, so I had, I you know, I knew there was something going on with him. Yeah. Um, but that's as much as I knew, so I learned things for the podcast.
1: Well, let's talk about what King George III, the werewolf.
0: Um, <laughs> um, like many other things on the internet, that's wrong.
1: It hmm. wasn't a werewolf. The werewolf
0: thing, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but, I was going to say the Porphyria thing, like most things on the internet, that's most likely wrong.
1: Mm, I can't,
0: like, 100%.
1: Wait, but you can 100% say he wasn't a werewolf? Yeah. Mm. I'm going to do that. Fine. That's a bold step. I'm
0: debunking the Porphyria myth because I don't think the werewolf thing needs to be debunked. Okay. Yeah. So King George ruled, the third, that is, ruled from 1760 until, well, until his health really, really failed, Okay. which made Parliament name his son, George IV, as Prince, Prince Regent in 1811.
1: Regent. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: Prince Regent. Sure. Yeah. He was like regent over himself.
1: <laughs> Basically. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, so though, you know, he ruled for almost 60 years, and apparently he did some pretty good things during those times. That's not really what he's remembered for. Um, He's famously remembered for being the monarch who lost America. Mm, Yep. And for his periodic, or some might say intermittent, bouts of severe illness. um, Which also led to erratic behaviors. Makes sense. Um, So, why do we all think he had progeria? Why do we think that? In the 1960s, there was this mother and son psychiatrist team.
1: That seems abnormal.
0: Uh huh. Ida McAlpine and Richard Hunter. And they said that Georgia III's medical records showed, you know, he suffered from acute intermittent progeria. So they based this diagnosis on um, the muscle weakness, blindness, vocal hoarseness, obstructive jaundice, abdominal pain, and discolored urine described in the king's medical records, okay? Okay. So, like cool, right? Yeah. Sounds cool. When they published this paper though, there is a lot of well-argued criticism by professionals, especially those with extensive clinical experience in acute porphyria. Okay. Um, but Michael Pine and Hunter's claims were supported by other historians, psychiatrists, physicians, the media, and just everyone just accepted it. Okay. Even though there was a lot of criticism, it kind of went away. So uh, we'll kind of get later into why it might have been so widely accepted, even though no one really dealt with the other, like the criticisms, the well-founded criticisms. Um, but more recently, a British porphyria expert named Dr. Timothy Peters reviewed their, their work and their archival notes and all these things. And found out that they, uh, according to him, were quite selective in their reporting and interpretation of King George's medical signs and symptoms. Okay. Um, Timothy Peters concluded that their diagnosis wasn't supported, needs to be revised. And um, so, okay, they didn't have things necessarily wrong, is what he's trying to say. Like, he did, King George did suffer reportedly from abdominal pain. Sometimes he had seizures Um, he did become blind and possibly deaf, though the blindness was probably from cataracts. Sure. Most likely. Most definitely. (laughs) Um, his urine was discolored, but as Dr. Peters points out, it was blue, not brown or red. And this was almost certainly caused by a medication that the king was taking called gentian violet, because that's a known side effect of taking gentian violet is blue urine.
1: Okay. Okay tracks
0: so scientists I, I just i'm just gonna say scientists that know more than me because this is this is kind of a collection of what the other side has been saying this whole time quote it is clear that their interpretation of these symptoms as diagnostic of acute porphyria was misleading and some interpretations were bordering on the fraudulent hmm. it's noteworthy, noteworthy that as psychiatrists Macalpine and Hunter did not apparently consider the mental state of the king during any of his health declines. They didn't factor that in in their diagnosis. Another criticism said, quote, Their psychiatric philosophy moved from a psychoanalytical approach to embrace organic or biological psychiatry, and this bias is reflected in their work on King George III showing that the Mad King had a metabolic disorder furthered their aims, and clearly their research was colored by their philosophical agenda. They also sought to remove the taint of madness from the House of Windsor, for which they hoped to be appropriately rewarded.
1: Oh, I see. Okay.
0: Um, The implication, the accusation here is clear. Yeah, Um,
1: it's politically driven.
0: So yeah, yeah. So like, yeah, maybe it wasn't super clear why so many of these... Seemingly eminent scientists in the sixties, kind of uh, and historians, supported this paper when it came out, though it didn't have very well, well, kind of lack of uh, supporting evidence. But um, that royal family angle maybe is a good guess. Sure. Because if we can prove he had porphyria, then he wasn't crazy.
1: Yeah, he was just suffering and from an illness. His
0: descendants are not crazy. Yeah, and all those other things. Um, well, mental illnesses are illness too. Yes. But what I want to point out is that in the 60s and still today, there is a great stigma towards mental illness compared with physical sure. illness. Yeah. So the big question is what was actually wrong with King George III?
1: That is a good question.
0: So researchers Peter uh, Gerard and Vasiliki Rentumi um, reviewed all the king's handwritten letters that they could get their hands on. And they focused on his use of language. And what was uh, really interesting is that George's sentences were much larger uh, in verbosity and word length Mm -hmm. uh, during his episodes, his uh, medical episodes, than when he was well. So, for example, when he was experiencing symptoms... He composed what they called creative, if not outlandish, 400-word-long sentences.
1: That's a decent run-on sentence.
0: Yeah. So, apparently, psychiatrists see this same form of uh, non-stop writing and speech during manic phase patients in bipolar disorder. Right. Um, Once that euphoria kind of wears off, the person then becomes depressed. Yeah. Yeah. So, the idea that George may have gone through manic periods also matches um, the descriptions of his illness by actual eyewitnesses. Um, So, he apparently could talk incessantly. One court observer wrote, he could talk, quote, until he was exhausted, and the moment he could recover his breath begin again, while the foam ran out of his mouth. Okay. So, meanwhile, there was uh, a hair analysis performed in 2005 that found high amounts of Arsenic, which, you know, that's also bad. That is toxic. It is, yeah. Uh, Mental health issues, neurological issues can be caused by arsenic poisoning. And arsenic was a commonly used medicine at the time, so he might have actually been prescribed it for his symptoms, even though it probably made them worse. Sure. Now, having said all that, does that definitively... Disprove the diagnosis of acute intermittent porphyria. I think that the problem is a poor diagnosis, a bad diagnosis is really difficult to a hundred percent disprove. Sure. Um, especially once it's entered into the popular
1: yeah opinion or
0: or right ideology. It kind of reminds me of that Henry VIII had syphilis thing. Yeah. Which, if you haven't listened to our Henry VIII episodes, he did not. Right. Um so I'm gonna say you should all make your own conclusions. I don't believe he had porphyria. That is my opinion. I don't think we can one hundred percent say it's the wrong diagnosis, um, simply because things that happened two hundred years ago are very hard to prove.
1: It definitely so, yeah.
0: Um it's you know, and proving is a very high bar in science. Of course. Um so it seems like bipolar is a good fit it seems like Porphyria is a bad fit Mm-hmm. Uh, seems like other things were going on with him as well I'm gonna go on a limb and say I don't believe he had Porphyria but you know fair enough whatever you think that's, that's up to you okay but don't believe the internet because they'll just tell you he for sure did
1: yes of course
0: mm-hmm. let's stop spreading that rumor on the internet stopped okay Next. Okay. We just talked about not a werewolf.
1: So now we're going to talk about the claims that he was a werewolf.
0: <laughs> we're, we are going to talk about werewolves. Perfect. Which are not King George.
1: Oh. All the other ones. Fine.
0: Maybe King George the first, but not the third. Okay. Yeah. We're going to start new rumors. Perfect. So, okay. In 1964, there was a very interesting paper... Published concerning porphyria by one Lee Illis, entitled "On Porphyria and the Ideology of Werewolves." Okay. Um, to be clear, this is before any of the vampire stuff. This is first. And in this paper, Lee Illis argues that the origin of the werewolf myth may very well be um, caused caused by inspired by early sufferers of porphyria.
1: Interesting. Okay.
0: Now, because he wrote a paper called On Porphyria and the Ideology of Werewolves, and because I read said paper, I'm going to start off by talking about the ideology of werewolves.
1: This makes sense.
0: Um, You will be shocked to know that the word werewolf comes from the Anglo-Saxon word were, meaning man, and the word wolf. Meaning wolf?
2: wolf. Yeah. Okay. Good. (laughs) Shock. Yeah.
0: That one's not one of those, oh, cool. That's just like, oh, okay. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so obviously transforming into a wolf is the most prominent form of the werewolf myth.
1: Mm, Yes, it is a key aspect.
0: But it's not the only aspect because different locales have different forms. Like when you go further south, I mean, he was British. So when he's like further south, I mean, he's just talking about Europe. Anywhere. The further south you go, you're more likely to find were-tigers. Ooh. In myth instead of werewolves. That's fine. And the further north you go, you're more likely to find were bears. Very cool. Um, he made the point that where the animals are like the real animal is um more of a threat, I suppose. Sure. Is is where these things come from. Okay. Um so Leolis does point out that werewolves were known so long ago that they're familiar to the likes of Pliny, Herodotus, and Virgil. Hmm. And, you know, well, you, know, you know me. When I uh, when I saw Pliny's name, I had to go look up and see what exactly what crazy stuff Pliny had to say about werewolves.
1: Yeah, um, and um, how you treat it and all those things.
0: Well, I'm going to do something I've done before and read you some boring old translated Latin. Okay. Because I honestly... Can not convey what Pliny said without just reading it to you, sure, it's so good, okay, so here's what Pliny said Quote, that men have been turned into werewolves and again restored to their original form. We must confidently look, confidently look upon as untrue unless indeed we are ready to believe all the tales which for so many ages have been found to be fabulous, but as the belief of it has become so firmly fixed in the minds of the common people. I will here point out its origin. Euanthes, a Grecian author of no mean reputation, informs us that the Arcadians assert that a member of the family of one Anthus is chosen by lot and then taken to a certain lake in that district where, after suspending his clothes on an oak, he swims across the water and goes away into the desert where he is changed into a wolf and associates with other animals of the same species for a space of nine years. If he has kept himself from beholding a man during the whole of that time, he returns to the same lake, and, after swimming across it, resumes his original form, only with the addition of nine years in age to his former appearance. To this, Fabius adds that he takes his former clothes as well. And then, guys, then, Pliny has the gall to say, then, quote, It is really wonderful to what a length the credulity of the Greeks will go. There is no falsehood, if ever so barefaced, to which some of them cannot be found to bear testimony.
1: Mm, Those gullible Greeks.
0: Lying, bald-faced, fabulous story-spreading Greeks. Um, Besides being, you know, racist and all that. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I had to say that whole quote because, like, the nerve of Pliny to call out, anybody for, like, their false testimony. Yeah. I just can't. I I love Pliny so much. He is the most ridiculous. Oh, I love this. It's delicious irony is what I've decided. Of course. So, yeah. That's what Pliny says. But the point is that there were werewolf stories and people told werewolf stories and even Pliny admits that they were, you know, so prevalent in the people. Yeah. That's the point. Even if he thinks they're made up.
1: Okay, fair enough.
0: (laughs) Um, So, Leolus then goes on to tell us of the earliest written accounts of the transformation. That of Lycaon, who was changed into a wolf by Zeus as a punishment for eating people. Um, That's a whole long story. It's a pretty good story, but Lycaon, you know, that's where we get the word for wolves and lycanthropy and all all those things. Um, So, since the time of the Greeks... Uh, stories and legends of werewolves have been common pretty much all over the world. South America, Asia, Africa, Europe. Um, The belief seems to have peaked around the time of the witch hunts in the Middle Ages. Okay. Lee Ellis tells us there are several ways, historically, I I think mythologically is the better way to think about it, but of of turning into a werewolf, or turning into a wolf. Um, Personal intent, by the witchcraft of others, by the instigation of the devil or evil spirits, or by divine intervention. So, metamorphosis by personal intent might be caused merely by the removal of clothing.
1: Oh, or it's a good thing people never get naked.
0: (laughs) Well, even Pliny just said that guy takes off his clothes and swims across the lake and he's a wolf. Um, Or by putting on the skin of an animal that you desire to transform into. You just want it really bad, and then you do it, I guess. Um, but usually it's by an incantation or anointing with ointment. Um, the witchcraft of others might change an innocent person into a wolf. For example, there are numerous instances of royals and nobles change into wolves by witchcraft. It's a popular of trope in some mythologies. Um, in regard to that divine agency, divine intervention part, um, apparently the King of Wales, Veratricius, Veritric- Veratricius, was changed into a wolf by Saint Patrick. Oh. That St. Patrick. And the famous Christian philosopher, who we'll actually speak about again later, which is why I said it's funny this episode, is kind of about the Catholic Church, St. Thomas Aquinas, he said, All angels, good and bad, by some natural virtue, have the ability to transmute our bodies.
1: Sure. Always good. Angels. Yeah.
0: Good or bad. Okay. Maybe Maybe. you really want to be a wolf, I don't know. Yeah. So importantly, and I say importantly because... I think this leads to where we could have got some of these stories from. Not all these transformations were complete. There are many stories of partial changes. Um, There was a guy named um, Jean Baudin, a French priest, and he wrote a book about witches and other occult things um, in the 16th century. And he wrote about a bunch of partial transformations, which involved only the hands and teeth. We're going to see later how Porphyria might just affect those areas.
1: Fair enough. Um,
0: There are several examples of werewolves occurring in the same family, like many werewolves in the same family. So, genetic. Which, yes, might be relevant to the genetic nature of Porphyria. Um, So, the actual descriptions of werewolves throughout history are uh, difficult to compile, they're varied. But often they aren't described too well. It's just like, this guy transformed, he's a beast now, or whatever. They're just beastial looking. Like, they don't really go into too much detail. So what we do have, um, they're, like I said, commonly described as beastial humans. So they still appeared human-like.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, They're often described as having scarred or marked skin, pale or yellowed skin, having red lips and teeth, um, and, you know, hairy But only occasionally are they described as being hairy. These all can be accounted for by different perfurious symptoms. Yeah. So I'll I'll talk about that in a second. But so Lee Illis concludes that, quote, a belief as widespread both in time and place as that of the werewolf must have some basis in fact. Either werewolves exist or some phenomenon must exist or have existed on which by the play of fear, Superstition and chance a legend was built and grew.
1: Yeah, makes sense.
0: Okay. So let's talk about porphyria symptoms um, and how they could line up with those werewolfy traits I just mentioned. Sure. So porphyria, as we've kind of said, results in severe photosensitivity, light sensitivity. Um, On the photosensitive areas, some symptoms your skin can have are hypotrichosis, so excessive hair growth on those areas. Uh, rashes, blisters, scars. Um, photosensitivity might be especially noticeable during the summer or in mountainous regions.
1: Why mountainous?
0: I don't know. I tried to figure that out. Like the but summer part makes that's sense to what, me. That's what... This is what the paper says. Sure. And it doesn't... It's harder to... When people reference things from the 60s, they don't always still exist yeah okay so but there are a lot of werewolf myths from mountainous areas okay so there's that the hairs and scarring kind of speak for themselves yeah um the urine is often reddish brown obviously from the porphyrins and people throughout time you know might have mistaken this urine for blood or thought that if you're eating people livestock things whole that you would be urinating blood like that all kind of lines up um the pale or yellow skin of the myths is explained by porphyria because porphyria can cause liver issues so jaundice, jaundice. jaundice is yellow yeah or anemia which we talked about which can make you pale
1: yeah
0: or just you know being really sick with chronic illness can make you pale. Yeah, that as well <laughs> um the photosensitivity thing might cause a porphyria sufferer to prefer to go out at night totally be wandering around in the dark at night it
1: also would account for them being pale.
0: Werewolfy things. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so there's also a tendency for the skin lesions to ulcerate. The ulcers Dang. attack cartilage and bones. Over a period of years, the kind of like cartilage parts of your nose and ears, even parts of your eyelids and fingers will kind of become mutilated. Yeah. If you have chronic attacks and you're not being... Treated. Treated. Yeah. Um, which, of course, you wouldn't have been. So this would give a bestial or, you know, kind of scary appearance to a porphyria sufferer sometimes. If it gets real bad. Makes sense. Um, the teeth might be red or reddish brown because sometimes the, porf- the porphyrins can be deposited on the teeth and gum area. So it just makes your mouth look red and teeth look red and all of that. Obviously, that's a scary werewolf characteristic. Of course. Um, and then something Ellis points out is that werewolves in the mythology tend to be adult males. Not that they're never women, not that they're never children, but the majority are adult males. And now, this does jive well with porphyria. Again, there's um, some of the inheritance pattern, the X-linked inheritance pattern right. one, would predominantly affect males over females. Because when you have an X-linked inheritance pattern, yeah. that means that the condition is carried on an X chromosome. And when you're a male, you have only one of those. So yeah. if you get one bad one, you're hooped. Now
1: you're, you're stuck f- with it, basically. Yeah.
0: If you're a female, you have the other X chromosome to, um, you know. Compensate. Compensate is a good word. Yeah, exactly. So that, and then the onset of porphyria manifestation is typically more into adulthood. So adult males.
1: All of that lines up.
0: Right. And acute porphyrias do cause, we remember we said neurological issues. So mental symptoms as well. Um, so that can range from mild hysteria to, like, manic depressive psychoses, delirium, which, I, you know, again, seems kind of like they could have used that to talk about King George, but they, again, the psychiatrist did not mention that whatsoever. No. Anyways, that could explain some, you know, erratic behaviors of accused or so-called werewolves. Cool. Anyways, so, it was this pair, like, paper that came out, and, and a few decades later, A lot of people had taken notice of it, but that's what led to the subsequent theories that porphyria was maybe a source of the vampire myth, too. And that was, um, well, in fact, sometimes people call porphyria the vampire disease.
1: That's what I'm more familiar with, yeah. Um, So in
0: 1985, University of British Columbia's David Dolphin, who apparently would go on to become one of Canada's top chemists, Mm. introduces this theory of porphyria and its ties to vampire legends. He wasn't exactly proposing it as seriously as Lee Ellis was or anything, but, like, man, did people just, like, run with it. Okay. So I wouldn't, like, say that he was out there being like, this is a thing for sure. He was like, oh, what if? This is interesting. And then everyone was like, oh, my God. It's totally the right. thing now. Let's
1: latch on to this. Okay.
0: So don't blame David Dolphin.
1: Don't blame the Dolphins. Got it.
0: <laughs> um, there is very similar reasoning here. As the, the werewolf myth. Um, photosensitivity thing, you know, going out at night. Anemia is the pale skin. Dark red urine because of the porphyrins, you know, or because the vampires drink blood. Yeah. Obviously. Um, repeated porphyria attacks can lead, in in certain types of porphyria only, to the gums receding, which can make the canines look much more fang-like. Pronounced, yeah. And then the red fangs. It doesn't help, yeah. Doesn't help. Um, in fact, there there is some evidence that early physicians recommended that porphyria patients drink blood, um, but they recommended animal blood, not, hmm. you know, to go This makes sense. somehow suck blood out of people. That would have worked out okay, by the way, um, because in most cases of porphyria, blood transfusion or heme transfusion is one way you can get relief from the symptoms. Um, we still do that today. So interestingly, the heme pigment is actually tough enough to survive digestion and is absorbed in the intestines, even though the protein parts of the hemoglobin break down. The, the, the globins, sure. the globs, the globular parts. Yeah. Um, so this means that in, in theory, you know, it's possible to relieve porphyria symptoms by drinking blood. Um, and this is another tangent, by the way. I was interested. So heme infusions, um, don't just help because of the heme absorbed. Um, if you have a heme infusion, you, of course, get that heme that you that you need that helps with your anemia. But the second thing is that when your body has more heme in it, that is going to suppress trying to make more heme is what's called a negative feedback loop. Yeah. So your sense. body is smart. There's a lot of ways for it to upregulate or downregulate its construction or destruction of things. And so when it sees it's got enough heme, it's not going to try to make more, which means it's not going to run that broken machinery and not going to make more porphyrins to jam up and and cause more symptoms. Right. So there's actually two ways that that is helpful. Um, Interestingly, I find it interestingly that this might have been one of the only times the old-timey treatment of bloodletting might have actually helped people. Oh, Because you could quickly remove... All those porphyrin intermediates from your circulation. Um, Or, you know, it may have made the anemia worse in some cases, but bloodletting was such a stupid idea almost always, I'm going to go ahead and give them that one. Okay. They they get the weight in there.
1: Good job. One check mark. One gold star. Or half a gold star. I was going to say a a red star, but like, Mm
0: -hmm. yeah. Um, Okay, back to vampires. There are some more like far-fetched links people have postulated over the years. So there's articles again online is just crazy. People say a bunch of crazy things. So articles online everywhere are going to be like, Oh, well, they're, they're making bald face claims. Okay. Some of them say they're, they're positing it, but some of them just say, this is why Mm -hmm. they say the vampire thing and garlic thing makes sense because the sulfur content of garlic could lead to porphyria attacks, which could lead to pain. So therefore aversion to garlic. (laughs)
1: <laughs> um okay
0: and then oh in the mythology vampires can't see themselves in the mirror or can't look in mirrors it's just
1: like porphy- porphyria porphyria sufferers yeah
0: because they're so disfigured they don't want to look in the mirror they look oh, I was terrible. say they're so
1: pale that they're see-through okay got it
0: it's <laughs> not quite that far um or like fear of the crucifix and holy water is because you know it's often reported that during the spanish inquisition 600 vampires were burned at the stake Though I looked, and I can't find any sources for this number.
1: Well, other than that one.
0: Yeah. Other than that one. And people just repeat 600 everywhere, and I don't know where they got it from. I do believe that, you know, from the writings that they killed supposed vampires, but... Sure. This seems a- Anyways, um, if vampires, you know, were actually innocent, porphyria sufferers, then that's why they're scared of these Catholic symbols. This makes sense, guys. Look at all these links we found. Mm, yeah. Okay.
1: A little skeptical.
0: I'm going to throw some science in. Oh, this. no. Okay. <laughs> so, the type of porphyria that can cause the serious gum recession, skin disfigurement stuff is the congenital erythropoietic porphyria. And that one is super rare. There's only been a few hundred cases ever diagnosed that we know about. Okay. Um, it's very serious form of porphyria. And. It's not one of the forms of porphyria which would be helped by ingesting blood. Too bad. (laughs) Wait, wait, counterpoint. Okay. Counter to the counterpoint.
1: Yeah. Um, They should do it anyways.
0: the (laughs) The reason this type of porphyria is so rare is because it's a recessive inheritance pattern. One of those recessive ones. Yeah. I mean, it's not like the one reason, but you know what I mean. Things are more rare when... It's a recessive pattern, because as soon as you have one good copy of the gene, you yeah. don't have it, right? Um, so the argument is that the congenital orthopedic porphyria could have been less rare in the past, especially in isolated communities where inbreeding could have occurred, totally. such as the valleys of Transylvania.
1: Oh. oh. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, okay. I'll leave that one up to you, but it does seem...
1: I mean, there's. I guess there is some plausible path there.
0: The garlic thing. Let's do that. Okay. So that suggestion is because, the way people explain it, is that um, allyl disulfi, which is one of the compounds in garlic, does activate an enzyme that destroys hemoglobin by removing iron from it. And so the theory is that, well, since porphyria victims already have poorly functioning red blood cells... The, the garlic—that's why garlic causes porphyria attacks.
1: Okay, like causes the attack. Okay, and sulfur so, compounds
0: are bad. That's the theory. Okay,
1: and and so you could suggest that an astute porphyria sufferer would start to notice when they eat garlic they have attacks. Right. Okay.
0: Okay, that's all well and good until you actually test the theory. Does garlic actually trigger porphyria attacks?
1: And what so. does science say? <laughs>
0: Obviously, we acknowledge that in porphyria, there's a problem with hemoglobin synthesis. But that's, that's not, no. That's not what causes the, the, uh, like I know I said the anemia is a symptom. That's that, you know, from having lack of heme, that's a symptom. That's okay. Yeah. But the, like, painful symptoms are caused by the porphyrins, right? Yeah. The like acute symptoms that you, anemia is not an acute thing really, right? Like anemia is more of a, anemia is more of a chronic thing that you feel tired and you feel kind of crappy, right? But the, what they're talking about is like the attack, attack being triggered. That's like a porphyrin thing. And that has nothing to do with what, what they claim. Um, and yeah, in any case, there is just no evidence that real porphyria patients have anything to fear from garlic. I looked up dietary advice for porphyria and I looked at like, the National Porphyria Societies in several different countries, and like the medical societies, and none of them mention anything to do with avoiding garlic. Um, the American Porphyria Foundation says there is no particular diet that is indicated or recommended for persons with congenital erythropoietic porphyria.
1: Okay, but well, what did the, like the National Vampire Society say?
0: Uh, garlic bad, but not because of porphyria. They're,
1: okay, fine.
0: Yeah, that's what they said.
1: Again, you're using science to ruin our conjectures.
0: Anyways, I think that one's pretty busted, because I feel like at this point, doctors would know if garlic was actually an issue. Sure. Um, so I do want to point out that other diseases most definitely contributed to these werewolf and vampire myths, if diseases were the main factor to begin with. Um, like TB. Um, oh, don't spoil it for everyone.
1: Sorry, spoiled.
0: We'll get there. Um rabies is one contender oh, sure. especially yeah. for the werewolf yeah. thing. Yes. TB is a large contender or definitely a, a thing for the vampire one. Yes. Yeah,
1: but kind of a different mm, vector on that one.
0: We're going to get, we'll one, get what vector?
1: Yeah. I'm just going to raise my eyebrows at you and, and stop spoiling and ruining things.
0: That's the last thing we're going to talk about. First I want to talk about the Catholic Church because that's that. what you thought we were going to talk about when you clicked on an episode about porphyria, right, guys?
1: It. it how could we talk about porphyria, porphyria without talking about the Catholic Church? I agree. Mm-hmm. They, they, I'm glad you
0: get me so. Some well.
1: people can are confused that you know that those terms aren't actually the same word. So
0: mm-hmm. yes, um, yes, I, I'm going to acknowledge it's a huge tangent. Okay, but I'm doing it because I was intrigued by the whole Catholic Church killing vampires during the Inquisition. Thing. Sure. And so then this I just got this whole story about the Catholic Church's relationship to vampires and werewolves and witches, but, you know, mostly vampires. Okay. Um, so, like werewolves, the blood-feeding, undead type of creatures have long been a part of mythology, obviously much further back than the existence of the Catholic Church. I would assume so, yeah. Um, so in the second millennium BCE, the Babylonian and Assyrians, um, they have writings about vampiric creatures the Greeks wrote of vampiric creatures. One type of vampiric creature was called a lamiae. Um, other non-Christian cultures across Europe, like you know Celts and Germans, like all those those folklores have different vampiric creatures in their folklore. Um, so before Christianity was strongly established in Europe, the people obviously had these other belief systems already. Yep. And Christianity didn't just like pop into existence in a vacuum, right? Not so much. <laughs> so, and then even after they kind of took over, starting in the 1100s, um, you're going to find that the poor, who really had no hopes of anything, improving their lots in life, mm-hmm. right? They weren't really satisfied with just the church's promises of an afterlife when they couldn't even get by day to day, right? Yeah. So, naturally, they kind of turned to more of these pre-Christian beliefs that gave them maybe more hope for a better life. No soon yeah instead of once you die maybe things will be better sure yeah um the church was doing pretty okay with royals and nobles and stuff in europe but they needed a way to strengthen their connection with like the the peasants the common people yeah and so what they did was they tied into the current belief systems smart really right so they built churches on old non christian sites they incorporated non christian holidays and symbols yeah i'm sure you've mostly all heard of you know how saturnalia turned into christmas that kind of thing
2: yeah
0: um i'm going to i'm going to tell you a quote that i liked Christianity turned the nature deities into devils, spells into magic, and spaywives into witches, but could not banish the ideas from the imagination of men. So adopted stones and wells turned spells into exorcism and benedictions into, and charms into prayers. And um, if you were like me and was like, what is a spaywife? Yeah. I looked that up. Okay. So spaywife is a Scots language term for uh, like a fortune telling woman. Oh, okay. Spay comes from the Old Norse word meaning prophecy.
2: Cool, okay. So
0: it comes from Norse, then Scots, then... Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I I do like that explanation.
2: Yeah.
0: Um. So, what did the church do with the vampire myth? Instead of ignoring or replacing or condemning the myth, the church actually gave it credence by declaring vampires as a work of the devil. So basically, you know, they gave a... Th- authority to it, the myth but then offered solace to the true believer by saying you know we have the remedies to prevent vampirism and that created an environment for the church where they held all the power
1: sure that they'd be sought after for saving
0: right so as far back as the 400 C.E., the church actually laid the foundation for this type of mystical thinking um bishop augustine of hippo uh philosopher and theologian and one of the church's most important fathers and figures. Um he wrote a book titled On the City of God Against the Pagans. Uh and I'm gonna tangent in my tangent here and tell you about this book, even though it doesn't have a lot hmm. to do with.
1: Okay, go for it.
0: <laughs> so I, I just think that some context is cool. Um, this book was written for Romans. Like the sack of the Rome of of Rome by the Visigoths in 410 really upset the Romans and a lot of them were saying this is a punishment for abandoning our gods. Okay. Um, and Christianity uh, is, is the cause of us losing our, our cool empire. Yeah. And so Augustine wanted to just change that narrative, I guess. So he wrote the city of God um, and he argues that Christianity was not responsible for the sack of Rome. Instead, Christianity was responsible for all of Rome's success.
1: That seems like a little bit of, like, a revisionist history.
0: The church has never done that. What? Ever. No church has ever no. done propaganda.
1: Okay, good. I'm glad to know that.
0: Uh, that make you feel better? Mm,
1: uh, if I were to believe it, sure.
0: Anyways, so I thought that was cool. But the important part is, in this book, he explains how a demon can use a body for evil purposes. Quote, just as the demon can from the air form a body of any form and shape and assume it so as to appear in it visibly, so in the same way he can clothe any corporeal thing with any corporeal form so as to appear therein. Woo. Anyways, this is a big thing for the church. Um, He's not directly addressing the vampire myth, um, but he opens the door for later scholars Because Augustine here is validating demons as being real. And being able to do corporeal things.
1: And disguise themselves in other bodies.
0: All that's left is for the church to declare vampires as demons. And now, bam, they're real and they can do things. Right. Yeah. Um, This was like a first big step towards What the church wanted here. Um, well, wow, I wouldn't say that, adopted. what eventually is going to happen, is yep. what I'm saying. Like, we've gone back in time, and we're going to go forward into time again, back to where we were, the Middle Ages. Okay. And um, another very extremely important philosopher and theologian for the Catholic Church comes along, and we've spoken about him earlier, St. Thomas Aquinas. Yep. Well, I don't think I called him a saint. They're both saints. Bishop Hippo guy, Augustine of Hippo is a saint. Thomas Aquinas is a saint. Anyways. Mm-hmm very very important. This guy is one of the most important philosophers of the church ever. And um so he lived and wrote in the 1200s and he's going to re- reaffirm basically what Augustine said about demons. Um he I'm not going to tell you the whole quote because it's all in Latin and even though I love reading Latin it's uh what he's basically saying is if you believe angels are real and do good things, you must then believe demons are real and sure. can do bad things. Right. And of course, there is no if because you must believe in angels because the church says so. Right, right.
1: Therefore, yes. you must believe in devils. Yes, demons. Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: So we are we are really on the demons are completely real. And as soon as the church says a vampire is the work of the devil or work of the demons, then they're real too. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that being established, though, the church still didn't have to acknowledge vampires as demons. So so why?
1: I assume that they have a politically driven motive
0: the supposition here is that the similarities between the basic beliefs of Christianity and the basic beliefs of the vampire, well, not of the vampire, you know what I mean?
1: Of vampires or vampire. Hmm.
0: The tenets of vampires. Yeah. Um, yeah. Are, are very important. So the, the vital f- feature of both of them is, is blood. So at first the church stated that they saw blood as a contaminant. Um, and they've, they theologically justified this because it was associated with bloodshed and sin. But in the middle ages, there was this very growing devotion to blood. Like that it was, it was the focus of a lot of things. Okay. And, and that makes sense, right? Let's face it. As far back as we know, blood has been seen by people as a source of power. There's, you know, blood sacrifice and drinking the blood of your enemies. And there's, there's always this association. That's not new. Yeah. Um, but again, the common people are pretty into blood and they're pretty devoted to these things. So the church stopped finding it. Okay. Um, so the middle-aged devotion to, to blood, um, incorporated the blood of saints, martyrs and Christ all of a sudden. So the belief was that holy blood is going to work miracles, you know, cures blindness, cures leprosy, all that stuff. In um, the 13th century, stories even started to spread of the Eucharist miraculously bleeding.
2: Yeah, so okay. then there is
0: this another popular devotion to the blood of the Eucharist. We're talking about the communion wafer, yep. not the wine, because that would be a little...
1: Right. Makes sense.
0: Anyways, let's remember that this is the way, according to the Bible, that Christ asks the followers to remember him at Mass. So I'm going to read a Bible verse at you now. Oh, fun. A few of them, actually. This is the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 53 to 56. Quote, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. And, uh, You may, I mean, obviously, vampires drink people's blood as sustenance, and now they're saying you need to drink Jesus' blood as sustenance. Yeah, it's pretty, yeah. yeah.
1: Telling everyone to be a vampire.
0: Yeah. So you may be like, okay, this is clearly symbolic, though. Like, I'm taking it too seriously. But I am not. Protestants think it's symbolic. Sure. Catholics do not, because of this whole thing Catholics have going on called transubstantiation of the host. So through transubstantiation of the host, Catholics believe during Mass, the Eucharist becomes the body of Christ and the wine becomes the blood of Christ. Um, so you know, and then there's that whole part in there about live forever as a servant of God if you if you drink the blood. And okay, well, but if you're bitten by a vampire, then you're going to live forever. Yeah, as the undead. Um, so cursed, but they both offer eternal life. They both offer sustenance. There's a, there's Uh, an almost exact parallels here.
1: Correct. Yeah.
0: Um, so the similarities could explain why the church chose not to eliminate the vampire myth, but use it to explain how their stuff is, is Obviously true, because vampires are true. So our stuff is true, but we're just the good side of it, and yep. you're the—that's the bad side of it. Yeah. Um. So there are suggestions by several academics that the church, um, pushed the vampire myth specifically to explain and establish that whole transubstantiation of the Holy Eucharist in the first place. Right. Um. So the medieval church recognized vampires as an opportunity to further their strength. Because, again, you need the church to fight vampires. You need the church to s- prevent being a vampire. Being and, a vampire.
1: And therefore, vampires must exist for them to toe Have that, that line. Yeah.
0: So, according to the church, there is only one way to not become a vampire.
1: And that's to...
0: Have a be Christian a good, burial.
1: Yeah. I was going to say be a good Catholic, but Well, sure. we'll get
0: there. It's kind of a roundabout, be a good Catholic. Because the important part is you need a Christian burial. Okay. So first, the body had to be, quote, decently laid out with lights placed around the corpse. And then you had to put a crucifix on their chest or fold their hands in the shape of a crucifix on their chest. Okay. And then you sprinkle the body with holy water. You had to incense it at specific times and bury it on consecrated ground. And the priest got to do these things. Okay? Of course. It was all very important. And so the church controlled people then. And exerted a lot of political influence by the threat of excommunication. Because if you die when you're excommunicated, you don't get a Christian burial. And then you might be a vampire. Or, you know, the suffering of eternal hellfire thing. I'm sure the vampire vampire threat wasn't like the only threat, number one threat. But, of course. Like, but like eternal, eternal, eternal vampire, of, you know. vampire, bad things happen to you when you don't get a Christian burial. Because you're excommunicated, so you should probably not get excommunicated by being a good Catholic. Got it. Yeah. Um, once a person became a vampire, then you need the church. The church is the only way to battle against a vampire. Um, the only cure was the wooden stake through the heart, or decapitation, or burning the body. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just a wooden stake thing.
1: True, sure.
0: yeah. Um, Those three so, have always been pretty common. But the vampire cures have to be performed by a priest in order to work. You can't just be cutting off the head. A priest has to do it or be there. I don't know. Sanction it? I don't know.
1: Something. Yeah.
0: Priest has to be involved. So what I find interesting is that in some areas, the wooden stake had to be made of aspen or white thorn. And this is because of the belief that Christ was crucified on a cross made of the aspen tree. Right. And the thorns, the crown of thorns on his head were from the white thorn tree.
2: Right. Okay.
0: Which, you know, this is all news to me. That's cool. And then what about protecting yourself from other people who were vampires? Well, the church is going to use the vampire, the witch, the werewolf, these occult things as, you know, a
2: Boogey metaphysical
0: man. scapegoat. Ooh, yeah. Right. And they're going to lovingly protect you by setting up the Inquisition to how, how hunt, generous hunt of them. down these demons. Um, because, you know, the Inquisition was, as we've spoken about, the Catholic tribunal, 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 (laughs) responsible for heresy, getting rid of the heresy. And they were responsible for all these deaths related to the occult. Um, because if you were any one of these things, then you are clearly invited the devil into your life, the demons into your life. It wasn't like you're an innocent victim. Ipso facto heretic. Yep. Dead. Okay. So I thought that was cool, and that's the end of my Catholic Church um, tangent. Okay. And we're just going to finish off really quickly by talking about more recent vampires mm. or vampire panics. Because I don't. Yeah. Again, I don't. I'm not actually saying vampires are real, guys. Yeah. Don't worry.
1: Are we? Are we going to northeastern United States now?
0: I mean, I was going to say North America, specifically the New England area. Perfect. Yeah. I mean, they've been found as, as far west as Minnesota. Minnesota. I'm,
1: I'm sure they have.
0: Yeah. Um, and it shows us how recently and fervently this vampire myth was believed. So there is a body found in Griswold, Connecticut that had been completely rearranged. The skeleton was beheaded and the skull and thigh bones were placed on top of the ribs like a skull and crossbones. Jolly Roger flag.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, more analysis of that body um, show that the beheading and other injuries like rib fractures occurred about five years after the death. Yeah. And someone had also smashed the coffin. Um, they think that the posthumous rib fractures were made when the heart vampire accusers mm-hmm. rummaged around the chest to remove the heart, probably to burn it. Yeah. Because that's what you did. Um, there are a lot of historical records of a vampire panic in 1854. In a neighboring city, Jewett City, Connecticut, where trans people had exhumed a, quite a few corpses that they suspected of being vampires that were rising from their graves to kill people. And there's some newspaper accounts of, of these events talking about what happened. Um, lots of these burials have been found in, like you said, that northeastern United States area, particularly southern Rhode Island. Okay.
2: Um,
0: where, yeah, corpses suspected of being vampires were disinterred and Tampered with in some way and then reburied. Um, Today, scholars still are a little struggling to explain the vampire panics, but a key mm-hmm. detail is that the public hysteria almost always occurred in the midst of an outbreak of tuberculosis. Yeah. So that first corpse I told you about, when they analyzed it. Yes, they found that they'd indeed suffered from a tuberculosis or tuber clo- um, like a tuberculosis-like lung disease, something like that. Probably tuberculosis.
1: As in, the vampire had TB. Okay, that's not actually the angle that I'm aware of. Keep going.
0: <laughs> the vampire had TB. Yeah. Well, the dead person that they smashed the coffin of, yes, definitely had had TB. Yes.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: Why is that interesting?
1: Because the way that I understood it in that area was that an outbreak of TB suggested that. Um, a vampire was draining your life energy. And often the vampire would be somebody who had died and is now buried, but they could still extract your life energy from you. So a, an outbreak of TB meant that there was a vampire around. Yeah. And what they would do is that they would go exhume the bodies and find the one that was the most... um Juicy. Yeah. Like still in good remains. And they'd be like, that's the vampire. Then they would desecrate that body in order to prevent the TB from continuing in other people. Yeah. But that the vampire didn't often have TB themselves.
0: No, that's the wrong part. All of that is is correct, but the townsfolk would blame the earlier victims that are dead from mm-hmm. TB sure. as being the vampires. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So um one important thing to note is these panics always happened in very rural, agrarian, typically poor areas. Yeah um and and the particulars of the vampire exhumations do vary um in many cases, only family and neighbors participated, but sometimes like the town fathers or leaders voted, or the medical doctors or the clergy would give their blessings or participate. um Some communities in Maine and for example, Plymouth, Massachusetts opted to just flip over the vampire, and that's it. put them back, just turn mm. them face down, they're done. Um, in Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Vermont, they usually would burn the dead person's heart and inhale yep. the smoke as a cure.
1: Or mix the ashes into a
0: tincture. Didn't work. Um, in Europe, these kind of panics happened as well. Again, yep. exhumation protocol varied with region. Some beheaded the corpses. Others, um, they bound the, the feet with thorns so they couldn't get up and walk around at night.
1: Oh, okay. I hadn't heard that one.
0: Yeah. Um, some... Most often, this was kind of a secretive thing to do. You go out at night and you do it all creepy. But in Vermont, particularly, they were quite public and festive. Um, One vampire heart was reportedly torched on the Woodstock, Vermont town green in 1830. Like everyone got together. In Manchester, hundreds of people attended a 1793 heart burning ceremony at the Blacksmith's Forge. Um, So I'll just end this podcast off by talking about a famous American vampire story. That of nineteen-year-old Mercy Brown. Her family called her Lena. So Mercy Lena Brown lived in Exeter, Rhode Island, in the late 1800s, and the consumption, consumption, you know,
1: TB, yeah,
0: came to town. Like it had it been in New England since you know 1730s, um, and this is before that vampire scare started. But by the 1800s, the TB was kind of at its height, and it, TB was responsible for almost a quarter of all deaths. In the Northeast area.
1: Wow, that much?
0: Yeah. And obviously it was terrible. Like it was drawn out over years. You have a terrible fever, hacking bloody cough. You visibly wasted away. So you can see how the symptoms progress in such a way it seemed like something was draining the life and blood out of you. Yep. Um, So even though Robert Koch identified the tuberculosis bacteria in 1882, again, these are rural areas. These are poor areas. If your local doctor or, let's face it, clergyman was not on board with the science, then you weren't either. Um, and even in the big cities, drug treatments aren't available to the 1940s anyways. So now we know it's a bacteria. What are you going to do about it anyways? So this news didn't often reach the rural communities. And if it did, they didn't always believe it.
1: Well, especially if it didn't offer any solution.
0: Exactly. So, in the Brown family, in December 1882, Lena's mother got sick. Then her 20-year-old sister died the next year. Her brother got sick and moved to Colorado because, you know, they used to say the mountain air. Not Uh, warm The the mountain air, air, you know, would would be the cure or whatever. Um, So, Lena was just a kid when her mom and sister died. She didn't get sick until nearly a decade after they were buried. Um, But what happens is they call it galloping tuberculosis, which means they thought she was infected earlier, like when she was a kid, remained asymptomatic, and then by the time she starts showing symptoms, then you start to to fade real fast. It's not like a long, drawn-out illness like some others. Um, So a doctor attended her and, you know, just told her family there's something that they could do, and she dies in January 1892. Uh, At this point, her brother Edwin was back in the family home. He recently returned from Colorado in, quote, a dying condition. So, um, yeah, he wasn't long for this world. But the trans folk approach George Brown, the father, mm-hmm. and they say, no, 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 this isn't what's happening. Uh, we think one of the three women in the family, they're not dead after all. They are oh, secretly the feasting on Brother Edwin. Yep. And and you can save him. Um, this is what the Providence Journal writes. This is, we have a newspaper accounts of this. Yep. Um, and so the Providence Journal uses the term vampire, but the locals don't use that term, just to be, to be clear. They just used kept saying things like the offending corpse or the, you know, offending party, whatever. Um, if they could, they could destroy it, then Edwin would get better. So they asked George for permission to exhume all bodies, to check for fresh blood in their hearts, and George said, sure, but I'm having no part of this. Yep. <laughs> Um, so predictably Lena's sister and mother were skeletonized by this point. Mm -hmm. And Lena though, had only been dead for a few months and it was winter.
1: Yeah. So being in a frozen ground.
0: She's pretty well preserved. So they removed her heart and liver. They cut open the heart. They didn't find like running blood. They found clotted and decomposed blood, but apparently that was enough. Yeah. The doctor did note that he found diffuse tuberculosis germs in her lungs, but Okay. We're ignoring that. She's a vampire. So as the custom goes, they burn the heart and liver, and they fed Edwin the ashes to cure him, and then he dies in a month or two. Yeah,
1: vampire got him.
0: Yeah. So as I said, this story is not unusual for the area, but we do have a lot of publication about it. Like the yeah. Providence Journal. Uh, a well-known anthropologist named George Stetson traveled to Rhode Island and witnessed the, quote, barbaric superstition. Mm-hmm. Then he wrote a paper about it and published it in the American Anthropologist Journal.
1: And then...
0: That spread around the world. (gasps) And there was an 1896 clipping that found its way to a London stage manager and aspiring novelist named...
1: With two first names.
0: Two first names. Mary Shelley? Bram Stoker.
1: Bram Stoker. I'm thinking the wrong one. It's not Frankenstein.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Whose theater company was touring the United States that year. And Dracula was published in
1: 1897. I
0: know, so cool. But don't don't get so excited. A lot of scholars said there's definitely not enough time for this news to have changed or or influenced the manuscript of Dracula. Um, but others say, okay, there's this character called Lucy, which is clearly Lena plus Mercy together, Lucy. And, you know, Lucy was a consumptive-seeming teenage girl turned into a vampire who is exhumed in the novel in a really, like, big scene. Yeah. So, clearly. Anyways, one thing that is certain is that this exhumation of Mercy Lena Brown was referenced in H.P. Lovecraft's The Shunned House, which is a story about a man being haunted by dead relatives. And there's a character named Mercy as well. hmm So, um, it has inspired a lot of popular fiction. Yep. Yeah. yeah um yeah so in conclusion i don't really know what this episode was about necessarily um but i enjoyed myself did you enjoy yourself? i did yeah i think that's all that matters mm-hmm. uh next episode we're gonna talk about rome perfect i haven't decided yet if it's mythological or historical
1: both are very fun
0: i'm gonna do both I just don't know which one's going to go first. Okay. So if you like either of those things, you should tune in again next time. Um, we also have an email address if you want to make a comment, question or criticism. Sure. That's maybe nicely worded or topic suggestion, anything like that. It's teach me something for, that's the number, not Mm -hmm. the word at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from any and all of you. I want to say thank you again for listening to this episode of Teach Me Something. Once again, I'm Melissa.
1: And I'm Everett.
0: And I hope you learned something new.